So you've been hearing me talk about Sense, this little orange box that gives you a full picture of how your home is performing. I've seen it in action. It is a very powerful tool. I've got good news. You can get 10% off for the month of April when you buy a Sense by using a promo code. Go to Sense.com slash Energy Gang. That's S-E-N-S-E, Sense.com slash Energy Gang. Buy one and use the code Energy Gang, all one word, and you're going to get 10% off. Sense was developed by the team that pioneered speech recognition. It connects to your electric panel and samples power over a million times per second. It lets you know what devices are on in your home and how much energy they're using so you can save energy and see what's happening all from your smartphone. Get 10% off with the code ENERGYGANG, all one word, at sense.com slash energygang. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. SunPower couldn't convince the government to abandon Trump's tariffs on imported solar panels, so it turned around and bought up one of the companies pushing the tariffs in the first place. The solar trade saga continues. Yesterday, SunPower unveiled plans to acquire SolarWorld's U.S. operations. Two months ago, CEO Tom Werner said SunPower was going to divest from America, but now he's buying his way back in. We'll explain how tariffs are shifting the PV manufacturing landscape. Then, shipping gets a carbon haircut. 173 countries have agreed to cut emissions from the shipping sector by 2050. It's not, quote, Paris compliant, but it is something. What's next for this sector that could make up one-fifth of global emissions by the middle of the century? And finally, the latest from Germany. Catherine's been in the country getting an update on the closely scrutinized energy transition there. And we'll get her take on where things stand. So, an interesting show this week. We've got people literally scattered all over. Catherine is flying in from Germany as we speak, and she's going to join us in the second half of the show. Jigger is in an airport lounge somewhere. Uh, where exactly are you, Jigger? I'm in Dallas uh, attending the EarthX, EarthX Earth Day celebration. All right. So we we caught up with him before he uh, hops back over to the East Coast. And then out in L.A., we uh, got her in the middle of a cup of coffee. It's Julia Piper, our senior editor at GTM. Hey, Julia. Hi. So we're going to start with a conversation between the three of us on this SunPower Solar World deal and the political implications. And then Catherine's going to join us in the second half of the show to talk about the politics of this global emissions deal in shipping, and then what's going on there in Germany, which will be really interesting. But first, we have some great news on the podcasting front. Good news for all you audiophiles. We've got a new podcast. It's called Political Climate, and it's hosted by who else? Julia. Yeah. So Political Climate, we just have done a couple episodes so far, and I'm super excited. I really love working with the co-hosts we have. We have Brandon Hurlbutt, who's a former chief of staff to the Department of Energy under Secretary Chu and and an Obama White House staffer, and Shane Skelton, who was an energy advisor on Capitol Hill to Paul Ryan. And so they bring the Democrat-Republican perspectives. We'd like hash out different uh, news events, policy issues, um, everything from campaigns to protests, and look at how um, energy and environment and climate issues will play into the 2018 midterms. And again, just given that they both have different perspectives and tackle some of the similar issues, but in different ways, it's just so interesting to hear what they have to say about all these events unfolding. Yeah, I think that's what this podcast offers, this deep political look from some insiders on 
the the politics shaping energy and climate and, and also bipartisan perspectives. The you three have a really good dynamic. And so there's um, it's it, there's a lot of strong debate here and, and joking debate and serious debate. And one of the things that people like about this show is that, you know, we don't often agree and that we have robust debate. And I think you're going to get that on political climate as well. I'll just add that for me, the 2016 election was a wake-up call for just how we end up in information echo chambers, and that applies to the energy and clean tech space, as in many other areas. Um, and so we really wanted to try and break out of those echo chambers. And this this industry is not does not belong to one party or the other. The planet doesn't either. So we really wanted to have these in-depth and engaging conversations across the political aisle. So I really hope people will tune in, and it should be a really fun show. Yeah, so we've got a little network here. Collect all three podcasts. Uh, we've got Energy Gang, which is our weekly discussion debate about the top business and policy news stories. We've got The Interchange, which is our analytical dive and interview show. And now we've got Political Climate for all you political nerds out there. So go subscribe right now to Political Climate on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. Now to the topic at hand. Sun power, solar world, and Donald Trump's tariffs. For weeks our editorial team has been trying to verify a potential sun power acquisition of Solar World Americas, and we just couldn't get enough verification fast enough to print a story. But then the story broke on Wednesday. The deal is significant for a few reasons. So we actually don't know how much solar sun power plans to buy Solar World for. Um, but the deal is really interesting because sun power has been a strong opponent of Trump's tariffs and a strong critic of Solar World for supporting those tariffs. And SunPower is an American company, but most of its solar manufacturing is outside the country. And tariffs, says SunPower CEO Tom Werner, are going to cost the company a million and a half dollars a week. Solar World Americas has been looking for a buyer for a long time, ever since the German parent company went into insolvency last year. Um, and the proposed acquisition gives desperate Solar World Americas a new lease on life, and it gives a desperate SunPower much-needed tariff-free U.S. production. So, Julia, you talked to CEO... Tom Werner yesterday. He said the deal aligned Sun Power with the Trump administration. What did he mean by that? Yeah, well, he kicked off the conversation by noting that, you know, over several weeks of meeting with the Trump administration, it became clear that they, quote, strongly uh, want to see U.S. manufacturing. I mean, that's, I guess, not a surprise. Trump has made that clear that that's a policy objective of his. Um, but it sounded as though they impressed upon the solar industry that, um, they would like to see some manufacturing announcements. I, I'm maybe reading into this a little bit, so I should note that. But that was that was how Tom framed it. After meeting with the Trump administration, uh, became clear that you know they wanted more American investments, and then this deal was they had a, an opportunity to either invest in a new facility for their P series modules, which they previously announced they wanted to start making in the U.S. and they had the Solar World facility. It was obviously up for sale. So that was just an avenue uh, to pursue their P-series here in the U.S. Of course, that doesn't totally maybe make sense. They'd have to do some retooling even to get their P-series to be built in the Solar World facility. So, and again, we don't know what the price tag was. So it's hard to know whether this was truly the most like the best financial move to build P-series in America. Um, so that's why, again, I kind of think there was a policy push here, uh, part of a broader um, initiative to get more manufacturing on U.S. soil. And, and Sun Power felt that uh, 
that would be a, a good move for them. And I think the way to get their exclusion for their other products that are made abroad still. Yeah. So the politics of this have kind of shifted overnight. Again, SunPower going from slamming tariffs to saying, well, if we if we can't beat him, we might as well join him. Uh, Jigger, is this shift surprising to you in any way? Well, you know, one of the things that uh, Julia might talk about in the, you know, the political uh, podcast is that, you know, I just think the normalization of Trump is striking here, right? I mean, I just think that, you know, the Obama administration put tariffs on the oil industry twice. And, you know, the Trump administration does it once, but says, you know, if you kiss the ring, we'll give you, you know, sort of an exemption um, from the tariffs, which, you know, so the economic value to SunPower is what one and a half million dollars a week for 52 weeks in a year. So, you know, I guess I'm just like, it really is shocking that this kind of stuff is happening in the United States of America. Like it just, this is the kind of thing that Putin like forces people to do within, you know, Russia. Okay, so let's let's break that down a little bit more. There are two interpretations. One interpretation is that uh, SunPower is just following its best interests. If they couldn't stop tariffs, then they might as well do the most advantageous thing for them, which is acquire a U.S. manufacturer. And it sounded like they'd been thinking about some kind of acquisition for some time. The other is this more dark interpretation that you just outlined, which is the Trump administration is basically forcing these companies to bow down and adhere to its policies. Um, you want to elaborate on that, Jigger? Yeah, I certainly don't blame SunPower for this, right? I, I think that they are doing what they need to do to stay in business, right? I mean, it's been a, a couple of tough years for them in terms of their economics and their, you know, lack of profitability. And so I think that the, you know, but but let's be clear about this, right? I mean, the exemption that they're going to get allows them to keep their existing supply chain in force, and it will mean that they will actually bring a bunch of modules from overseas into the United States to sell. Now, they will do whatever they need to do in Hillsborough to get the exemption, but not unlike Carrier in Indianapolis, which basically cut a deal with the Trump administration the week after his election, and then you know more recently, a few months ago, laid everybody off. Like, I mean, that's the likely outcome here, right? Is that you cut a deal, you get the exemption you want, and then a year and a half later, when no one's in the headlines, you shut down the plant. There were a couple things you addressed there. The most important being this potential exemption. We don't actually know if SunPower is going to get an exemption from the tariffs, but it has pushed hard for an exemption. And interestingly, on Monday, Solar World issued a, a some comments to tr- the trade body asking SunPower to be exempt. And then a couple days later, SunPower uh, made the acquisition bid for Solar World. Julia, do you want to unpack that a little bit for us? It's evidence of why there's a bigger political story at work here. Yeah, it feels on the one hand, just kind of how the sausage gets made, I guess. It's of course, that Solar World um, filing uh, supporting SunPower was a little bit of a surprise. I read it actually the day before the acquisition news came and was thinking, okay, great, this is an interesting nugget of a story. Boom, you hear the acquisition the next day, and it all kind of makes sense. Okay, Solar World's backing SunPower. They clearly have aligned interests. And that's actually how Tom Warner put it. He, he said, well, to be fair, yes, we have aligned interests. So Solar World backed us. I mean, but it's he he was really straightforward and didn't miss a beat to his credit when I asked him about this and kind of pushed back. And he's like, Yeah, we 
want to build in America. We have a distinct product with our existing one. Joining with Solar World will allow us to broaden our product offerings. And he didn't really present it as though there was a conflict of interest there with the Solar World backing. He acknowledged that Cineva did not back SunPower's request. Um, so I'm in speaking with him, it made it seem like this kind of was all normal. And it, it is normal for petitioners, I guess, to comment on requests for exclusion and they can back various um, applicants. So both both petitioners backed these um, off-grid solar companies, but the only major manufacturer uh, was SunPower to get backing again from SolarWorld. So it's hard to know exactly how shady it is. Um, obviously, now with the latest news, we know why SolarWorld did that. Jigger, I want to go back to something that you said, which was the implication that you know SunPower makes this deal and then potentially shuts down the plant when no one's looking. Obviously, that's speculation that we can't really comment on with any authority. But I want to unpack that a little bit more because you're, what you seem to be implying is that you don't think that that manufacturing facility is actually like cost competitive enough to survive. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I can't imagine that anyone within GTM's crack team would suggest that this plant can be made cost effective without turning it into a one gigawatt sort of gigafactory, right? I mean, I just think that that's where we are today. I mean, these small manufacturing facilities, unless they're making some sort of like small five watt and 10 watt and, you know, 20 watt type modules that are sort of more you know, small custom modules. I just can't imagine that anyone thinks that this plant will be really cost effective. And we know where the um, solar world modules are being sold for today. And we know where Chinese modules are being sold for in the US today. And solar world still trades at a significant premium to Chinese modules, which means that, you know, they're selling a commodity product and expecting people to pay a premium for it. Is there no ad- advantage for SunPower getting into uh, the market and, and offering cheaper panels compared to their existing high efficiency ones? In some ways, that seems like an interesting business move. Um, sounds like they're going to keep the Solar World brand for now, but that might change over time. I'm curious, Jigger, what do you, what do you think of that? Um, just purely them branching out into a different product line. Well, they've done that for years, right? I mean, to be clear, most of their utility-scale solar projects use Chinese modules. They don't use their high-efficiency sun power modules. And so so they have been importing you know, commodity modules for the utility-scale business for years, right? So then, so then the question still becomes the same, which is that can they import, even with these tariffs, modules from China or other places, India, for instance, or other places, um, cheaper than they can manufacture it in in Oregon, in my sense is, yes, they can import them for cheaper from other places um, than they can uh, manufacture them in Oregon. Well, what are the potentially positive overlaps here between the two businesses? Um, so SunPower is great at putting money behind research and development. And I think that they've indicated they want to put more money behind R&D in the Solar World facility. Meanwhile, you know, Solar World has been desperate to find a buyer for some time since I think August of last year. So there's a really clear overlap between these companies. It, it, it seems to make sense when viewed in that context. What else, Jigger? Anything else kind of catch your eye about the benefits of this acquisition? Uh, look, I, I think that we have to start by saying that we do not believe that SunPower would have done this transaction if not for, you know, sort of the possibility of getting exemption from the tariffs, right? I think that we all, I think, agree with that. And I think Tom Werner sort of hinted at that. Um, and so, 
so yeah, so I don't love it, right? It just feels very sort of, you know, like like we're normalizing Trump in this era. And I just don't think we should be normalizing that. That's not what the United States generally stands for. And we shouldn't be doing that. On the other hand, I hope that SunPower continues to work with the Trump administration to get a gigafactory built in the United States. There, it is possible for us to build a gigafactory here. We do make a lot of silicon in the U.S. And it's easy to sort of see how you create, you know, a gigafactory city that, that involves one of these facilities in Montana or in Tennessee or in Texas, right? And so so I think that there is a pathway by which we can cost-effectively make modules here, and it will include rebates and incentives and grants from the federal government. But I, but I don't see that this step is necessarily positive for long-term U.S. manufacturing. Take this with a great assault, just me reading through it, but he really emphasized how proud he was of his company. He did really explicitly say this deal would not happen if it weren't for the trade case context. And I wouldn't say he went overboard in praising the administration, but definitely talked about how meetings were had and now interests interests align was the was the line he used a couple of times. So it was interesting. I don't know if I totally put him in the same camp as some of the other, um, I guess, manufacturers and in other industries. It, it seemed pretty level-headed, but um, yeah, for what's that? For what that's worth, I thought he played it pretty well. But yes, did make it clear that um, this was a coming from the top. Yeah, look, I I can't say this enough times. I do not bl- I do not blame Tom Warner in the slightest for any of these actions. Like if I had the responsibility for thousands of people's jobs, I would absolutely do what I had to do to continue to stay in business and continue to have a license to operate, right? And Tom is in a very competitive situation, right? I mean, a lot of his most important patents have expired recently. LG is coming, you know, and breathing down his neck on high efficiency modules, and so he's got a lot of work to do, right? And and um, you know, the alternative may have been that he has to exit the U.S. market and and um, you know focus on high efficiency modules around the world, which is not a horrible thing given that the U.S. is such a small percentage of the overall global market. But like, um, look, I don't blame Tom at all. I just think that we should call what the Trump administration is doing here out and say that this is not American values. This is not how America was built. And this is not how we should be. uh, We should not believe that future presidents should be able to act this way. Anyone want to speculate to wrap up here whether this is just the first shoe to drop? Are we likely to see more re-shifting uh, in the U.S. manufacturing space, or is this basically it? Well, I, I am happy to predict that SQN, who basically started this whole fiasco, who is still owed $55 million for equipment that they delivered at Suniva's manufacturing facility, um, will probably not get a strategic deal. I think pretty much everyone in the U.S. hates them so much that like they're looking forward to having those guys eat that $55 million loan and have to write it off on their books. And so well, I don't I don't foresee someone doing this deal with Suniva. Yeah, I always just come back to like, here we are a year later, so many briefings have been filed, so much effort and lobbying and campaigns. And it's always just a little sad. I don't know. I'm so kind of naive, maybe even though I've covered Washington, D.C. for a while. And just like, why do we put ourselves through this? Is there no better solution? And it reminds me of one time I was covering a story about two massive industries. And I was with one of the representatives of one of them. And they're like, this is two fat guys fighting over a ham sandwich. And 
only the lawyers eat steak. And it feels kind of like that situation. <laughs> Indeed. Well, Jigger, maybe you can pick up a ham sandwich on your before you jump on that flight. I know you got you to gotta get going. So thanks for joining us for this conversation. No worries. It's, uh, it's a big story to cover. Let's take just a moment here to talk about our sponsor, Sense. Sense lets you keep tabs on your home, save energy, and make the most of your solar investment. And the good folks over at Sense, they're giving you a 10% discount when you buy one of their nifty little devices for the month of April. So uh, don't miss out on this because it is a very cool technology. It's brought to you by the same team that brought speech recognition technology to market. And they realize that the smart home is where things are happening. Sense uses machine learning technology to identify the unique electrical signatures of your individual devices. And if you have solar, you can compare whole home energy use and solar production side by side. No monthly fee attached. For solar installers who want to help customers make the most of their solar investment, Sense is a really important product. It's a good sales device. Or for utilities that are looking to deliver more holistic energy services, Sense can help there too. For the month of April, you get a 10% discount when you buy a Sense. Go to Sense.com, S-E-N-S-E, Sense.com slash Energy Gang. Use the promo code Energy Gang, all one word. Well, we're playing musical chairs here on the Energy Gang. We lost one member of the gang. Jigger left his uh, perch in the airport lounge and is headed from Texas back to the East Coast. And just arrived from Germany is our very own Catherine Hamilton from 38 North Solutions. Catherine, hello. Guten Tag. How are you? How's your German? Uh, Not so great, but Berlin is awesome. So really, really enjoyed it. So I know you flew from Germany because you couldn't take a container ship, and it, it would have been um, perhaps dirtier to take a container ship than an airplane. You know, we think of the, the aviation sector as contributing to greenhouse gas emissions in a big way, but the shipping sector is actually a pretty substantial piece of our emissions picture. It's only a, a few percent of overall emissions, but there have been some studies looking out to the middle of the century that have predicted shipping could make up 17 up to 20% of our global emissions just because it's so hard to make progress in that sector. And, um, you know, you look at the electricity sector where renewables are kicking butt, it's going to be hard enough there, but in the shipping sector where bunker fuel dominates and there's not really much you can do in terms of specific national policy, lowering emissions throughout the, the shipping sector will be even tougher. But we've got some good news on that front. Last week, the International Maritime Organization agreed to cut emissions in half by 2050 compared to 2008 levels. This is the first step in a very long transcontinental journey. Uh, so we're going to talk about why that matters and what tools the shipping industry may have to make these cuts. Catherine, Catherine, you talked to a journalist who's been covering this pretty closely. What what did you find out about the significance? Yeah, Maria Gallucci from Grist has written some really good pieces about this industry. And um, I'm hoping not to end up like Jared on Silicon Valley, who ended up in a shipping container traveling around. Um, but yeah, it's a really interesting industry. And it's, I don't know much about it, but have found out something through her articles and just reading and talking to people about it. And like you said, the emissions 
could go up by 250% by 2050 if they don't do something. Now, the trick about the shipping industry is that they have not been included in any of these climate agreements. From Kyoto on, they were basically left out and said, you all have to figure it out. They're not part of Paris. And the reason is this. They are governed by the International Maritime Organization, and they have to be a global organization. And the reason is that the shipping industry is not by country. They have to have uniform regulation. They have to have uniform construction standards, navigation rules, standards of crew competence, all these things that are really important to make sure all the ships are you know, the same that go from port to port. So it really is a global industry. And so for that reason, they were left out of all of these climate negotiations, but they were told you guys need to come up with something on your own. So it's taken a really long time for them to come up with something. Now they have, this is a huge step because now they have voluntary goals. They're going to get them to do a lot more counting of what they're doing, ident- you know, data collection, efficiency, and then they're going to put a stick on it and say, all right, we are going to then start regulating and enforcing this. Right now, their goals are voluntary. And what I found out was that countries can't just opt out. Everybody's in. Everybody is in. And, and so the U.S., even though the U.S. objected, as did Saudi Arabia and Russia and some other folks, They don't have the power to stop this and they can't the way the president did with Paris pull out of something because it's not the same process. It's an organization that basically manages everybody on the waters and the U.S. isn't any more of a superpower than anybody else. So they can't say these are not our ships. They can't opt out. You're all in or you're not in at all. So it's really interesting and everybody is on board to do this. It's taken a long time, but it looks like they're on a pretty good trajectory. This is the dirty little secret of global emissions. You have this gigantic sector that may eventually make up a fifth of global emissions by the middle of the century that just hasn't been touched because of these political complications and logistics complications. And also because there's not a lot of tech that's available in a major way. I mean, there, there are definitely a bunch of techs that can be integrated that we're going to talk about. But this is kind of a forgotten about industry? Well, it also is a little bit like the power plant sector and then it t- these ships cost over $200 million to build. It takes five years to build a ship and they generally last 20 years. So to be a first mover on new, completely new and different technology is a huge risk and requires an enormous amount of investment. And remember, 90% of the trade in this world goes through shipping and it's about half a trillion dollars in freight rates of income. So it is a huge part of the economy and yet is very very difficult. It really is like trying to turn a ship. Uh, really huge part of the economy to try to move and to get first, you know, first movers on in these new tech. So the new tech is both high tech and low tech. The low tech stuff involves just slower speeds. You know, that's that's a, a, a way to reduce fuel consumption. But in a cutthroat industry where you're moving goods. Um, place to place as quickly as possible. Slowing speeds isn't always the best option. You can also use uh, different types of sails as well to make propulsion more efficient. Then on the higher tech side, you know, battery storage for propulsion or hydrogen fuel cells um, are something that uh, companies and, and countries are considering. And then you have different types of oil, like maritime gas oil that can take the place of the the bunker oil that is commonly used 
in these vessels, but that's also way more expensive. And again, this is a pretty cutthroat industry. And so fuel switching isn't always an option. So there is a broad range of tech, but there are a lot of drawbacks for the industry for each. There's not a clear solution. Yeah, right now they use bunker fuel. That's basically sludge from petroleum refining processes. So it is really dirty stuff. And so some of the, and there is some movement on technology. So there are a couple of organizations. One is in this country, Sandia National Labs, which is located, headquartered in Albuquerque, but they've been doing a lot of work and research and development on fuel cells for shipping and for ferrying. They're look, they're doing projects in Hawaii and San Francisco. And so they're trying out fuel cells. And then the University College of London Energy Institute has a whole work on um, shipping and changing climates. They're doing this whole low carbon shipping uh, R&D work. And so there is a lot of work going on. And also industry like Maersk, which is the biggest shipping company manufacturer, they're doing a lot to try to start with new technology. Of course, the Norwegians have been doing this for a while um, with ferries and cruise ships. They're zero carbon. Uh, There will be zero carbon and they're using electricity. But you're right. It does take a long time. Yeah. So I just read recently about um, this company called Idisvik, I'm probably saying that incorrectly, but um, they were they built a boat for Statoil, and it it's a battery hybrid um, LNG and diesel supply vessel. Um, it was already kind of innovative that it was dual fueled by LNG and diesel, and then with a the grant they added this battery, um, which is 653 kilowatt hours, 1600 kilowatt hours, um, and it actually helps supply propulsion. Um, which is interesting because Catherine said these are kind of like power plants. That's literally some of the terminology that they use for this boat is kind of taken from the power sector where they talk about the battery pack providing spinning reserve for when the vessel is operating in um, these uh, dynamic positions, they call it, where they're being held in one area um, and they still have their propellers going. So uh, that's when there's some of the greatest savings are had with the battery. They can actually turn off one of the engines. Um, They also talk about peak shaving so when they suddenly need a quick burst during like demanding operations the battery kicks in then Um, so across those two applications they found that the battery helped reduce fuel consumption on this vessel by 16 to 17 percent on average and up to 28 percent in that dynamic positioning mode where it's kind of um, continuously running in one place so that was a really interesting example it was the first of its kind and now Statoil has um required in its contracts for seven more boats for them all to have these big batteries on board. So that's just, you know, it speaks to the trend of the uh, industry uh, getting on board with cleaner solutions. And at the end of the day, it saves stat oil money, right? This is fuel they don't have to burn. So I thought that was an interesting example. The stat oil example is a good one, too, because we had Stephen Bull on the podcast last week, and he talked about the need for regional carbon pricing. And Inevitably, when we talk about shifting the container industry, you have to have a carbon price in some way. And you have to have a carbon price because it's a global industry and it cross-cuts a lot of different regions and countries. So no one country can have an impact economically to promote these new types of solutions. You need to have regional carbon taxes. You need to agree on some kind of pricing mechanism that may make these out of reach, slightly out of reach technologies uh, or efficiency approaches more economical. So I thought that was a good example. 
Yeah, and it's tricky because these vessels are moving and you have to figure out who are you going to give credit to? Is it the port area or is it the water? You know, what waters are you in? So and that's, those are international issues. So it's tricky to figure out how to count the emissions and how you would do crediting. I would just say another thing that the International Maritime Organization has done is they have this whole Marine Environment Protection Committee. So they've been working on issues around the environment for a long time. They adopted energy efficiency requirements in 2013. And they have energy efficiency design standards. So more than 2,700 of their new ships have been certified with these new energy efficiency standards. But they also have to think about, you know, the, the, um, sludge and bacteria that can be in organisms that can be carried from port to port that are harmful, uh, trash that, you know, is part of the industry. So there are a lot of other things they have to think about, but this particular goal on greenhouse gas emissions is really going to be complementary to Paris. And it's really heartening to see them taking these steps. Yeah, I'm personally glad that this is coming to light because I feel like we talk a lot about climate action. Um, we talk about the greening of the electricity sector. We talk more increasingly about transportation and EVs. But I feel like we forget the consumer piece sometimes. And this shipping issue really speaks to global trade and how much more we are consuming globally. And we forget that everything you order on Amazon's got to get to you somehow. And that's baked into everyone's carbon footprint and we don't see it so we don't always think about it so as green as we want to be I think remembering that our purchasing habits um, are a big part of that is important and it's good to see the industry stepping up so that you know when people do need to buy stuff um, it's as it's it's better for the planet let's take this little podcasting container ship over to Germany now Catherine was at the Berlin energy transition dialogue this week with uh, a couple thousand people from all over the world talking about, what else? The energy transition. She's been on stage and backstage talking to fellow experts, and we're going to hear what they're grappling with there in Germany and beyond. I know this was an event with a global focus, but I want to talk about Germany first. The country has been under some scrutiny because you know, it sees itself as a climate leader. It has been a leader in a lot of ways, but it has also failed to make a big dent in greenhouse gas emissions. And there's this renewed debate about whether it's taking the right approach. And I'd love to hear, Catherine, about the general frame for talking about this subject at the conference. Yeah, they are self-aware, if nothing else. They know uh, what they need to do. They're very focused on moving forward and coming up with solutions in Germany that can that really apply to everyone. So as you said, the conference was global. There were speakers from all over the world, uh, a lot focused in the EU, but from sub-Saharan Africa, China, uh, really all over the world. Uh, but I was the only speaker from the United States, interestingly. But in Germany, they talked a lot about the energy transition as an economic driver. They see climate mitigation and clean energy as part of how they're going to grow the economy, how they're going to um, and, and so they link it. They don't delink it and make it politicized. It's really part of the way they. Oh, sorry, part of the way they think about their future. They talked a lot about how it will promote peace and reliability, uh, as well as the economy. They're talking a lot about jobs, especially with these coal plants that they're being faced with, transitioning workers from coal. And you know, they're part of their countries that are very coal heavy, Bavaria, for example, and they have got to figure that out. They really have to come up with new solutions for them. So they're pretty self-aware um, and they're 
and so they really want to be a leader in the EU and globally on how we're going to move forward. And I think they're definitely tackling their own issues. Well, let's talk about that self-awareness a little bit more. So Germany has long talked about this transition in a multi-tiered way. They've been, they were talking about transitioning the economy and creating green jobs long before that really took hold in the United States. Um, they talked about creating entirely new industries and supported solar early on, really before any other country did. So, you know, that's been part of the conversation for a long time. Just the big elephant in the room is the emissions picture. So I don't think anyone would say that Germany's failed in its creation of a clean energy economy, at least, you know, jobs associated with renewable energy, or the development of community projects where you have the highest level of ownership of projects than most other countries, but they still just haven't done a great job of lowering their emissions in a highly industrialized country. Talk about how they're grappling with that a little bit more as they try to expand those other objectives you outlined. So I think they realize that they have a ways to go on really transitioning and so they're thinking a lot about aggregation, about making sure that communities are able to access solar and batteries and participate in the market. Now, their system and throughout the EU, it is mostly the case that they have DSOs and TSOs, so distributed um, system operators and transmission system operators. And so it's much more of a decoupled scenario than, than it is in the U.S., so they're able to kind of figure that out a little bit sooner than we might be able to. And I think they are really trying to embed all of this throughout every part of their economy, through their financial systems, and certainly through Dana, Dina, which is their German energy agency that kind of oversees a lot of this. Um, they have like 650 projects that are going on. So they are really all in and the utilities are on board too. So all of those DSOs are trying to think about how they tra they transition and um, get more consumer engagement in this. Not dissimilar from what how the US is thinking, but they've already experimented a lot. Remember, we we talk a lot about the feed-in tariffs and, and things that Germany has done that you know, may or may not still be viable, but they were really on the bleeding edge of a lot of those. And I think they've learned from that. So they were able to experiment and, and they're just going to continue to to plod through it. And And I think they definitely have the will to get this done. I'm super interested, Catherine, to hear if the resilience and reliability discussion com comes up in Germany the way it does here. Obviously, it's kind of a policy um, priority for the Trump administration. And so, as we all know, it's led to this discussion about supporting coal and nuclear plants because we need, uh, quote unquote, baseload power. Um, did that come up at all in the discussions in Germany? I'm super curious. Yeah, so they do not see coal and nuclear as resilient technologies. That is not the way they talked about it at all. They talked about resilience in the form of digitization and having a much more digital system that they're going to be able to operate more flexibly. That's how they talked about it for the most part. That was the panel I was on, was on digitization and how that helps renewable integration, better operation on the grid, allows consumers to engage. So their issues are going to be more around 
cybersecurity um, and some on energy security. There were some conversations on that, but they certainly don't equate the way our department, our department of energy and secretary Perry has done um, of talking about coal and nuclear as being resilient at all. Germany is an interesting test case for me because you can have all these things. You can have better community resiliency, community empowerment. You can have better grid digitization. Germany has been experimenting with virtual power plants for a long time, for you know a decade and a half, I think. You can have the best soft costs in the world, and you can still have stagnating emissions reductions. So all of those components are a benefit to a climate policy, but I don't think they necessarily add up to a climate policy. And we still haven't found better ways of producing chemicals. We still have enormous emissions in the industrial sector and in auto production. Germany is trying to phase out nuclear power and is still burning more coal, has seen fluctuations in, um, in, in coal generation. And so I worry that we can have all those benefits, but they still don't necessarily add up to a strong climate policy. And I'm just throwing that out there because it's something that I've grappled with a lot recently. Well, it's interesting that you say that because there were a lot of folks from Norway there and they were called out because Norway has um, a zero carbon internal portfolio and they are a huge exporter of fossil fuels. So they're really living this issue of, well, we're exporting climate, <laughs> but we don't contribute to it internally. And they really have to deal with that. And I think a lot of countries have to. So one of the things that was really clear in this whole um, conversation was that this is that Germany sees itself as really part of the whole EU plan on climate and that everybody has to collaborate on this, that they can't be isolated as an individual country. Certainly, every country has its own resources and its own climate plan in agreement with Paris. But the EU really sees itself as very linked. And if they can use their transmission system to help move things around and mitigate in, in that way, that's how they're going to do it. They really look at themselves much ho more holistically. They may be taking different, um, they, they may be having different solutions country to country, but they see themselves as a whole. So there was not a lot of conversation about what is Germany doing that's different. It was much more com conversation about how are we all going to move forward. So the EU is a very strong presence there too. Time to wrap up the show and harness those free electrons, folks. Julia, you got the floor. You're our you're our guest co-host this week. What's your free, free What's your free electron? I wanted to highlight that Total has decided to invest around $1.7 billion U.S. in direct energy, which is a French and Belgian utility. Um, according to our analysts at Wood Mackenzie, um, direct energy's portfolio is about 800 megawatts gas and 400 megawatts renewables. So this is a big shift into the renewable space for Total. I spoke with them earlier in the year, and they talked about a multi-pronged decarbonization effort from everything on uh, how they run buildings to investing in renewables and transportation, everything in between. Um, so this major investment is a is a big push forward on that decarbonization agenda. Um, it is the biggest investment uh, they've made in years. It's actually, uh, they've spent about 
$1.3 billion in acquisitions since 2015. Um, this one acquisition alone will obviously be greater than that. So it's it's a big deal for uh, this major oil and gas company traditionally um, getting into electricity and getting into renewables. So I wanted to highlight that. Yeah, it's a good one. And I just for the record, that was a story I was going to choose. So I'm not smart enough or fast enough on my feet to pick another story. So I'll just... Um, riff on your story, Julia. I think it's very significant, not just because of the size of the acquisition, but because of this push into electrification. And we had Statoil on the podcast recently. Stephen Bull talked about the push into wind development and wind project ownership. Shale Khan and I on our other podcast on the interchange talked about Shell's push into electrification, buying up EV charging companies and competitive retailers. Now Total, which is invested in uh, SunPower and in Saft, the French battery company, is getting into electricity retailing. And I I think at some point, you're likely to see one of these big oil majors just buy up a a utility, maybe a, a, a regulated utility. This is uh, this is the beginning of a pretty serious trend, I believe. I just wanted to actually clarify one number. I think it's more like a 500 megawatt portfolio of renewables rather than 400. Um, but yeah, I totally agree. It's an interesting trend, although really only Total and Shell have pursued this so far. Um, other oil majors have been investing here and there in renewables and other technologies and maybe owning assets. But the real push into becoming a utility is kind of unique to Shell and Total thus far. So it'll definitely be interesting to see if the other giants get in the game. Catherine, what's your free electron? It's interesting because I'm going to go back to gas a little bit. Um, Senator Whitehouse from Rhode Island just introduced a bill to look at demand response for the gas sector. So demand response in electricity has about 10 million customers and you know reduces peak demand by about 6%. So those programs have been going strong for a long time. They've been really successful, but now they need to look at natural gas and see if they can save some on the peak demand for natural gas, especially in New England. There are a lot of issues with constraints on the pipelines. This could help anywhere there's natural gas, but certainly in New England, it is very prevalent. So Rhode Island is very interested in this. So they think they could save 40 million cubic feet of natural gas on a peak day, which is equivalent to 5% of the average power sector demand for gas during winter months. So the bill would direct DOE to conduct a study um, that looked at the technical potential for gas and energy savings that would look at the existing technologies that are available for demand response in that space and how they're going to measure and verify gas savings. And then they're going to do so, get DOE to do a pilot program that would allow entities, including gas utilities and the distribution companies um, and hopefully other innovators to develop a natural gas demand response program. So he just introduced this. He's trying to get some co-sponsors, but it seems like a really good idea. Yeah, well, if you can't get a carbon tax or carbon cap and trade, you should be focusing on incremental wins like this, which can have a huge impact down the road. All right, folks, that's going to do it. Thanks to uh, Julia for joining us this week. We appreciate you coming on with limited notice. Of course, always fun. Catherine, welcome back. Thanks for you know hopping out of your hopping out of your cab in transit and coming to join us. Absolutely loved it, and I hope you have a great Earth Day weekend. You too. You too. And if you all want to have an even better Earth Day, you can listen to all three of our GTM podcasts, The Energy Gang, 
The Interchange, and now Julia's podcast, Political Climate. Go subscribe. Check it out. I think you'll really like it. If you like the conversations that we have on this podcast, I think you'll really dig the the political conversations they're having in, in the lead up to the 2018 elections and beyond. So go check it out. Subscribe to all three. And you know, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts on all of them and send them to your friends and colleagues, folks. All right. Hit us up on Twitter. Let us know if you want us to cover anything else. In the meantime, with Julia Piper, Catherine Hamilton, and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang. We'll catch you next week.